0: Welcome to the Competitional Antitrust Podcast. My name is Thibaut Schreper. I'm a faculty affiliate at Stanford University Codex Center and the creator of the Computational Antitrust Project, which explores how legal informatics can benefit antitrust law. The project gathers over 55 competition agencies and 35 academics in the advisory board. Each month, we publish an academic article on the subject of competitional antitrust. You may find them at competitionalantitrust.com. Today, I'm thrilled to be receiving Fabiana Di Porto, Tatiana Grotte, Gabriele Volpi, and Riccardo Invernizzi, who co-authored a paper for us entitled I See Something You Don't See, a computational analysis of Digital Service Act and the Digital Markets Act. The four of them combine legal and computer science expertise, and for that reason, I am very grateful for having you today and for your article. So welcome to, to you all, and let us get started immediately. My first question to start with is how are you doing and where are you located those days?
1: Thank you very much, Thibault, for having us here today. Um, we are located, at, personally, I am located in Italy. At the moment, I am on the seaside, but of course, as most of us, I'm located in front of a computer, so I could be everywhere. <laughs> I'm fine. Thank you. and very happy to be here with you and to present our paper on computational antitrust and uh, computational analysis of the DSA-DMA.
0: Yeah, it's always good to see you. I'm very much uh, looking forward to our discussion. Who's next?
2: Well, maybe I'll go next. Uh, Well, also from my side, thanks so much for having us. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I'm in Germany right now, west of Germany, near Frankfurt. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much it.
3: Thank you very much. uh, For me, it's like an honor to present a paper for your journal. And uh, yes, for me, I'm in the north of Italy, in a city near Milan, which is called Pavia. And I'm quite good.
4: Good to hear. It's a pleasure for me, too, to be here. And I'm like Gabriele, I'm in Pavia, which is where I study. And I'm doing fine. Thanks.
0: All right. So everyone's doing fine. This is good to hear. Uh, So I guess. Uh, we can now discuss computational antitrust a bit. Um, I have to say that I'm, I'm partially excited with your article because I think it's a first of its kind. I'm curious to hear if maybe you've read something similar, but I certainly haven't. Uh, this is the first time I've read a antitrust article trying to leverage computational tools in a way to automate and to enrich the analysis of the laws and regulations themselves. So I was wondering if you could take us through the paper in two minutes or so Explain how you came to the idea of writing this paper and what's the main takeaway. Sure.
1: Well, the idea of the paper came during the sabbatical year I spent last year at the law faculty of the Hebrew University. There, I worked on digital markets in a highly interdisciplinary environment on the debate over its reform. Well, after winning a tender for a research project on algorithmic disclosure regulation, we set up a team together with Tatiana, with two wonderful data scientists who you met, and worked together remotely, meaning that we never met, for nearly one year. Now, coming to your question, most computational analysis of law focus on the text or application of adopted law. But we were wondering, actually, what happens before that? Now, if a regulation turns out to be less effective, <clears throat> there, <clears throat> there is substantial clarity around the meaning of some, uh, of some key terms. Can we identify the roots of such problems as early as in the lawmaking process? Now, the idea of the paper is to have a closer look of the EU Commission's consultation process, that came of what came to be the DMA, the Digital, uh, the, um, the Digital Market Act, and the Digital Services Act proposals. Now, these two are especially relevant because they contain a lot of new terms. Let's think, for example, to the term gatekeeper, tipping, and a lot of many ter- a lot of terms like these ones. Uh, which were far from clear at the point of the first consultation, which was before the publication of these two proposals. So we decided to use algorithms to automatically download the replies to the questionnaires which stakeholders were were asked to submit, and some more detailed position papers, which were also attached to those replies. We then built three groups of stakeholders which were individuals and micro contributors, small contributors, and then medium and large contributors based on the organization size. Then we applied algorithms to allow us to basically map out how certain terms are used by these groups. You can quite literally literally imagine it is a map. Um, In the last step, we then basically laid these maps, which allowed us to quantify the semantic relations between words for each group. Next to each other, to check for which words we find a significant distance. Uh, In other words, we found inconsistent understandings across these groups. Now, because we applied a statistical test in doing so, we can say a certain degree of confidence that these differences are not merely random, but they are actually systematic. And we did indeed find some significant differences for some key terms. And this means that basically these groups do use these terms differently. And this is very interesting, and this can be very useful for competition authorities around the world because that means uh, uh, that actually stakeholders do use these terms and do have understanding different understanding of these terms and this is what we found
0: but so i'm curious to hear why did you start the paper was it that because you were reading those um consultations and, and you thought, well, it, it looks like, you know, they are using those terms in a totally different way. Or did you have the idea even before that? And you thought, well, why not?
1: We, we had the idea before of using computational tools. And we had the idea of actually using algorithms in order to analyze text. Because NLP techniques, as we will discuss maybe later in greater details with our data scientists, can actually help us read much greater quantities of, uh, of documents uh, and therefore we decided to apply the different techniques uh, to a consultation process where usually authorities uh, and especially in this case competition authorities do have to deal with huge quantities of, uh, of documents uh, and this is how the idea came out And therefore, we, um, we wanted, we, we, we uh, combined our forces uh, in order to have, uh, institutional insights. uh, and legal insights and other scientists' insights in order to uh, decide which were the best techniques to read to distance distantly uh, reading uh, all the documents that we could uh, download from um, from the uh, commission's websites uh, and that that how that's how the idea came to us
0: i, I mean i guess we cannot stress enough the importance of uh, getting some data and some information in the first place so the fact that those consultations were made public. Was you know um, not not only necessary but also essential to your paper. Uh, so that's some, something I guess to be discussed. But so diving in into the results of your paper, um, so you you do show that there are indeed statistically significant differences between the stakeholders groups in the way they use some some terms and concepts which are competition law related. Um, and so to be very specific, you do show that the terms gatekeepers uh, monopoly uncompetitive, pro-competitive, tipping, self-preferencing, etc. were given different meanings by all of those stakeholders. However, and, and, I, and I found out to be very interesting, some other terms such as market power and dominance were used consistently by those stakeholders. So now my question is the following. Can we conclude that we need to be able to put numbers Because, I mean, indeed, as we know, market power and dominance, you know, we have lots of case law showing that if you have more than 50% of the market, then you might be dominant and 70% even more so. So do we need to be able to put numbers or at least a very clear criteria behind words so that people use them in a consistent manner? Or do you think that this is not necessarily the case?
2: Well, I think it is definitely a highly plausible hypothesis. That's that's for sure. Now, I think we also need to um, we need to stress that our methodology does not allow for causal inference. So that means we can identify inconsistencies. We can say that they exist. But we're not yet at a point where we can fully explain why they occur. At least we cannot test that as a, uh, we cannot test it empirically as a hypothesis. But of course, I mean, we see certain patterns. And I think one of the um, clearest patterns that we saw was that um, these very new terms like gatekeepers, like self-preferencing, or some that are um, used in the debate, but not, as you said, you know, discussed in, in uh, by courts, um, very often and uh, that do not have clear criteria, like pro-competitive for instance. Those terms, um, they did show up more often in the list of terms that uh, were not used consistently. So although our methodology does unfortunately at this point not allow us to empirically kind of prove this or cause a causal link between them um, or between how clearly defined a term is and how many inconsistencies in use we find. Um, it is, it, or our results definitely suggest such a connection, I think. Um, now, in the paper, we put a lot of emphasis on. Um, or and also give some ideas on how this research could be expanded in the future and i think finding a definite answer to this question is definitely something that would be of interest and in fact one idea could be to run the same algorithm on new data to be more specific uh the submissions to the current consultations on the dma and the dsa now the consultation is that's a continuous process. So we analyzed the submissions that were um, made before the proposals were published. Now we have the proposals, and especially in the DMA, we have a uh, definition of the term gatekeeper that at least contains some quantitative elements, um, some very clear and some very clear criteria. So I think what will be very very interesting uh, is will be to basically just do the same thing all over again and check whether uh, now after now that we have this definition with clear criteria, um, the we find less inconsistencies in the use of the term gatekeeper. And maybe, you know, then compared with other terms where the commission did not put forward a um, clear definition. And if they are still used very inconsistently, I think that would be a very, very strong hint um, in this direction um, towards you know this conclusion that yes we need clear criteria uh, for people to really have a very consistent understanding of certain terms.
0: And so indeed that's something I want to discuss because uh, it seems to me that if we push the idea of the article a bit further um, I'm curious to know if you recommend to the European Commission to put clear and measurable definitions on the concept around which there is no consensus. Uh, so. Perhaps, indeed, because the European Commission is giving us a clear and especially static definition of the word and the concept gatekeeper, uh, it might be that in a few years, but already in the, in the uh, ongoing consultations, you will see that the stakeholders are using this concept of gatekeeper in a consistent manner. So my question is, do you think that um, not, not putting clear criteria behind those, those concepts is a failure of the DMA? Um, or, or is it is it just a natural process um, and, and something you can't blame the European Commission for?
1: The idea that we have now in the DMA some concepts that are uh, w- uh, for which there are cl- clear criteria, like for instance uh, the, the term um, gatekeeper is much better defined uh, than terms such as uh, self-preferencing, which remains a little bit more. Larry, as you said, and yeah, I think that this, of course, links back to the question that we discussed earlier. Um, we of course cannot definitely empirically test uh, this hypothesis with, uh, algorithmic to the, with our tool, but um, it is definitely um, a conclusion that is in line with the patterns we find in our results. Now, of course, there's a general trade-off between very clear, but yet static and less clear, but more dynamic definitions. And especially when a field is evolving fast, a static definition might be soon outdated and hence lead to undecidable results. Because it might, for instance, not capture new developments that would need to be regulated. While on the other hand, uh, dynamic definitions, obviously, offer more room for uncertainty. Uh, well, in the end, it is up to the lawmaker to design what is more important, clarity for now or flexibility for the future. Well, probably uh, we will need to have more jurisprudence, case law and repeated debates on the, these topics. And we will see a convergence probably for most terms, uh, regardless of how clearly defined uh, they they are. Well, we analyzed a lot of terms, of novel terms, uh, which although they have been part of the debates, have only seldomly been clarified by the courts or even in subsequent legislation. So it would be interesting to see if we see that a, a common understanding uh, of terms with clear Maybe even quantitative definition develops faster than for more nebulous terms like, for instance, self preferencing. So I think this question offers a lot of a lot for opportunities for future research in the field of computational antitrust.
0: Well, that's exactly what what I was thinking about when you were, you know, explaining that indeed you may have a trade-off between legal certainty and also the flexibility for the future. Uh, potentially, you may be able to find um, a middle ground. For instance. Why not putting some, some sort of of movement and growth within the definition of the term gatekeeper? So it, it may have been that you are a gatekeeper if the number of users is uh, growing by more than 10% every year, for instance, something which is clear and also a bit more flexible. But that's, that's indeed a, a debate to have uh, in the future. Going back to the present days, you, you do conclude in the paper that the Commission identified uh, several ex ante majeures and, and say that because of some sort of uh, consensus um, coming up with the DMA and such as it is, was was a good idea and something that will bring the support of, of most of the stakeholders. And you do say that, well, it might be not that easy because indeed those stakeholders are using the terms in a, in a different way. So I'm wondering if it is already safe to conclude that compliance with the DMA and the DSA is not given uh, and that we will see quite a lot of litigation, precisely because the stakeholders disagree on what's the meaning of the DMA, what's the meaning of the concepts, what they entail, etc. So do you think that your paper is an early sign that the Commission should assign more than 80 uh, people on the DMA enforcement, which was reported in in the specialized press?
3: The point is that, uh, of course, uh, when we are dealing with uh, very complex arguments, uh, such as as the the ones we European Commission is uh, complying with uh, the DMA Act. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, different opinions for the different stakeholders, and so uh, there is a large need in nowadays, in our days, to use all the techniques and all the technologies to help uh, understand better what are these kind of points, and we would. What could be like uh, some kinds of disagreement points between different stakeholders, and so that's the reason why it's not important to have a large, a very large uh, group of works working dealing with DMA. But it's important to have a, a, a multidisciplinary team, which is also able to understand and use all of these new kind of uh, technologies and techniques. So uh, the most important things is to have a, a very uh, very um, reliable and um, competi- com- competitive uh, kind of member of the teams, uh, working and dealing with this kind of data. And uh, so, for example, in our paper, we use the uh, we use the word embeddings and sentiment analysis techniques to show how we can uh, demonstrate this kind of differences for a very particular topic where words. Uh, inside the DMAE and uh, this kind of techniques uh, could help. And so it's important that the European Commission, but also other uh, national uh, uh, antitrust authorities uh, should invest more and should uh,
0: hire some people who can understand this kind of techniques. And Gabriele, let me ask you the following question. What do you think would have been able to achieve uh, should you have a team of, let's say, 30 computer and data scientists in your paper did you encounter some things in which you, you thought at some point, well, it's too bad. It's only you know uh, just a couple of us working on that paper because with a large team we could have done this and that.
3: Well, uh, a lot. For, maybe for our paper, forty data scientists uh, is uh, quite uh, a lot. So, uh, what can help? Could that help? For example, be like a lot of people working in an end coding uh, all the text, uh, and so in this way we could have, like, uh, other kind of... Uh, we could have applied other kind of techniques, and so maybe have, have like, uh, more uh, more efficient and more uh, complex uh, results uh, about our analysis. But for our analysis, inside with our data, uh, the two data scientists are enough. So what would maybe uh, have helped us for our work uh, would have been to have more data to analyze, and so to have a, a better model to, to use. Maybe that.
0: Yeah, excellent. So the labeling of the data would have been yeah. uh, crucial. Uh, and so I'm curious to hear now, can can you run the same analysis using only official publications uh, to study, for instance, if the European Commission is consistent with itself? So not studying the stakeholders here, but just the European Commission and potentially you know also join the General Court and the Court of Justice.
4: Yes, the idea is very interesting and, of course, we can uh, restrict our attention to any set of documents. And by focusing focusing, uh, only on the official ones, we can expect to reduce uh, language artifacts or um, like misspelling or even grammar mistakes made uh, by the contributors and public consultation. However, uh, when dealing with uh, official publications, uh, there are two main issues to take into account. Uh, First of all, uh, the amount of available data is uh, reduced if compared with no. our research uh, and this can lead to uh, less statistically significant results uh, moreover our analysis mainly focuses on keywords and keywords tend to vary among different official documents on the other hand uh, uh, literature already shows the effectiveness of this kind of approaches in situations where we are expected to deal with the introduction of new concepts over time. And I would say that a common example is the translation from Shakespearean English to modern English. That is something similar. Uh, In conclusion, I would affirm that some adjustments are needed, but our method should work well uh, as a baseline at least.
0: And so how many documents did you use for your study and how many you think will be you know, at least a, 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 minimal number you would need to have some statistically, you know, significant results because for our listeners not doing computer or data science, uh, we do have to say very clearly that you cannot run this analysis with only 10, you know, uh, documents of five pages. So can you give us some, some, uh, order of magnitude here?
4: Yeah. Uh, we, we used around, um, 10,000, uh, phrases, sentences from, uh, from each, uh, each group. And we did. Um, what can be done is to use uh, previously done work to 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 use it as a baseline, as I said. And so we we would need um, less document in the future probably. But uh, uh, the idea is that we can't use one or two or ten documents, uh, even if they are quite long, because we can. Uh, uh, we can expect a single document to be consistent with itself at least uh, with uh, uh, lang- language connection between words so the same words in the same document is probably used in the same way and this is the first uh, first point we need many documents but then we we, uh, we also focus on the number of phrases because if if a document have uh, five phrases we can expect to find uh, uh, 50 terms at most and because we are interested in to connection we need many connections so long documents and many different connections so a big number of documents we will probably not need a huge amount of documents uh, going further because we can reuse part of the work we did but we still need some documents and uh, some long documents with uh, many words well two things
0: springs to mind from listening to you the first is that I've done some very basic natural language processing analysis of the DMA and the DSA to compare the two, and the the number, the amount of words per sentence is much higher. And I forgot in which one of the two, which which I took as a sign that potentially the team, you know, behind those two were actually different. So I'm not even sure if you know there are consistencies between the DMA and the DSA. Um, and I'll be curious to run the analysis actually within just one of those two to see. If we do have consistency here, that's point number one. And point number two, something that you did mention, which is more for the substance of competition law. But if indeed we improve natural language processing and machine learning techniques so that we need less and less documents, this, this could also be something very important when it comes to the ability of new startups to compete with the tech giants, because potentially they will need less data than what used to be the case 10 years ago. Uh, but that's, that's something for for, again, another avenue of research. Uh, I want to conclude asking you the final impossible question. Where do you think we'll be in five or 10 years from now in terms of what is possible to achieve in the field of antitrust using computational tools? So I don't know who's, who's first on this one. Um, but please go ahead.
2: Now, I think I cannot speak really about, you know, the tech side of it, uh, because I have more of a legal background, not a computer science background. Um, but I think, um, I mean, there are two parts coming together here, which is on the one hand, of course, the technological development kind of, and I think Gabriel and Ricardo will be able to speak about that. But I think that we also just need more acceptance, even more acceptance in the legal community, because um, I I think that, you know, or I feel like for a lot of um, scholars uh, or also practitioners with a a legal background, the idea of um, using computational tools, using algorithm is still a bit new, it's still a bit foreign to them sometimes Um, and I think it's great to see that competition law is in my perception kind of pacing ahead here and or going ahead um, and moving forward on this more than other fields maybe and I think that uh, what will be necessary is um, for more people to kind of open up their minds and to actually you know uh, maybe invest some time or just be willing to learn about the basic idea behind uh, especially natural language processing and um yeah to see how they can use it to tackle the the legal questions that they have because this is in the end what's interesting in this field i think you know the the questions they you know they require some uh knowledge of uh, the content so the law but then the tools come obviously from a different discipline and i think uh on on the side of of lawyers and legal scholars i'm hoping and i'm expecting to see that more and more people open up to the idea that there's more, there's not just reading law, there's not just reading a lot of literature, We can actually um, answer different questions or answer old questions in a new way. And I expect that, um, you know, all fields will, in, within the uh, like fields of law, will open up to this idea more and that from the legal side, um, there will be much more willingness to engage in this kind of interdisciplinary research. So I'm quite optimistic actually and very excited to see what's what's going to well, happen. Same
0: here. I'm glad we share the same optimism. And you know, funnily enough, it always comes down to human issues and the willingness of people to do things and learn about new things. Uh, so thank you very much. Curious to hear Gabriele, Ricardo, maybe from a more technical perspective, although feel free to discuss the law and social issues.
4: From a, From a more technical point of view, what, uh, what can be seen in the um, machine learning and artificial intelligence in the last year is the um, the outcoming of uh, unsupervised learning that is what uh, we done in our analysis and the problem with uh, supervised learning is that uh, as Gabriele said before we need a lot of labeled data and this is a uh, time-consuming and in uh, fields in specific fields like uh, antitrust or legal uh, legal technology in general uh, we need the uh, real um, a good expertise to to label data. So we have uh, not uh, not much people that uh, that can label data, and uh, we also may have different expert that uh, thinks uh, that have different opinion about uh, specific terms, about specific laws, and the absence of uh, of common uh, common agreement on terms uh, on phrases made very hard to label data and this is why in specific fields uh, machine learning is still struggling because uh, most powerful techniques are label uh, are supervised and rely on label data in the last years unsupervised uh, models unsupervised techniques are coming out so i think that in the next few years those unsupervised techniques can make the, the a jump ahead we, we may have uh, extraordinary results and it's hard even to uh, predict them because being unsupervised, they can identify patterns that we don't see. And this is why they are really interesting. So they may lead to nothing, of course, we don't know, but they may lead to something really interesting. And I'm very optimistic, uh, uh, very optimistic in, in that sense.
0: Well, good to hear as well, something beyond our imagination. And, you know, in the meantime, it might be indeed that, as you as you kind of mentioned, because we, we do need to, to, to run some sort of, of consistent analysis using supervised machine learning. We need to be able to label the data, the data in a way which is more consistent, and therefore potentially the substance of antitrust might change to accommodate a bit you know, the use of those tools if we see that they are indeed uh, useful. Uh, so the, the interrelationship between the two is, is uh, very strong. Uh, Gabriele, maybe you have something to say on that as well.
3: Yes, uh, as Ricardo said, I think that uh, uh, the use of unsupervised uh, machine learning techniques could, uh, like, revolutionize like the outcomes of this kind of analysis. Uh, also, because of the kind of low amount of data we can always uh, collect with uh, this kind of uh, uh, with this kind of subjects uh, and, um, antitrust, uh, and antitrust and um, situations. So, uh, what uh, could potentially be a, a very interesting uh, new kind of tools for example is uh, regarding the topic modeling uh, uh, and uh, for that kind of uh, uh, techniques there should be very very uh, amazing results also for example not so not only for uh, latin dirichlet allocation which is like the classical techniques uh, always used but there are a lot of new techniques uh, also uh, coming out from the uh, network analysis uh, such as stochastic block uh, and uh, applied to uh, applied to topic modeling, which could uh, help understand, uh, priorly, uh, the meanings uh, and the topics uh, uh, spoken by the uh, stakeholders. For example, in their answers to the uh, European Commission's um, the European Commission um, uh, request, and so uh, this could be very helpful like, to uh, have a deeper insight. On what the different kind of stakeholders would like to communicate and to uh, express uh, regarding uh, the antitrust uh, antitrust laws and acts.
0: All right, well, some more optimism. I'm very grateful for that. It's a breath <clears throat> of fresh air in, in those days. Fabiana, the last, the last word is yours.
1: Thank you. Okay. Um... Computational antitrust, so um, computational tools is just another tool in the box, in the toolbox and I think it can be of course very useful, so data scientists can uh, um, tell us a lot, can provide us uh, with uh, a lot of insights, uh, uh, new insights and uh, I can see this uh, as something uh, new of course, and we had already a lot of uh, waves uh, in the antitrust uh, and competition law studies Uh, so if we think of what happened with the law and economics uh, uh, studies uh, and then with the behavioral law and economic studies uh, um, we can uh, try to make a parallel with what is now happening with um, the computational studies and i can see um, basically uh, i would recommend uh, uh, two things. One is that data scientists work on the replicability of their methodologies, because this is essential for us as lawyers in order to be sure that we can employ with some safety uh, their methodologies. And for us, the lawyers, we are here to understand in what way those methodologies uh, are useful? Because the computational methodologies are evolving so fastly, we are here to understand and to be able to sketch uh, which ones are most useful for us in terms of uh, um, uh, understanding uh, uh, what are the most uh, um, uh, the most um, anti-competitive uh, uh, conduct or even anti-competitive market structure in these uh, um, digital markets, which are very difficult to understand and, to understand and that are uh, evolving so fastly. And uh, on this note, I will conclude.
0: Yes, thank you very much. And and I couldn't agree more <clears throat> when it comes to the replicability of those studies, especially when it involves unsupervised machine learning. Uh, it might be a challenge and, and something we have to, to come up uh, with uh, solutions for. Uh, so that's it for today. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, And take care. Talk to you very soon. And uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.